We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. I ask you to open your Bible now to the book of Jude. We've made our way through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and so we are now on to Jude this morning. There's a lot of comments that could be made about this book, but I'll try to reserve it to just this, that as you read through it, or as you listen, as I read through it, uh, note that uh, the author here is primarily speaking, well, he's writing to believers, but he's speaking about apostates and false teachers and how God will condemn them, and really how they're under God's condemnation already. And he often uh, will give some kind of condemnation, and then he'll call upon some Old Testament scripture as kind of an illustration uh, to back up his point. And so note that along the way he speaks about Michael the archangel as well as uh, Cain, I believe. And so just note that as we read along. Jude, verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied, multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Savior, excuse me, only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run 
greedily in the air of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of, their, of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These, that is, these apostates, these false teachers, really, these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that you, there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Amen. Let's turn our Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 4 this morning. Luke chapter 4, we'll start in verse number 14. The scene uh, changes again uh, from the kind of introductory material that we've been going over with regard to the Lord's ministry uh, beginnings. Uh, we've been introduced to John the Baptist, to Jesus, to their parents. We've been introduced to Jesus by way of his genealogy. Uh, John the Baptist by way of his baptizing ministry and preaching, and then the temptation uh, that Jesus underwent in the um, wilderness, probably the Judean wilderness. He was in the Jordan for his baptism, uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 3. Then he went into that Judean wilderness. Uh, by the way, do you know where that would be today? What would that be called today? Anybody know? It would be called the West Bank. The West Bank is actually Judea and Samaria, but you never hear anybody call it that. Why? Because they don't want you to know that it historically belongs to the nation of Israel. So I want you to be uh, 
biblically and uh, contemporarily educated so that you don't fall into that same pattern of thinking. In any case, uh, in chapter 4, verse number 14, the Bible says, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went through all the surrounding region. Now, Luke is doing something a little bit different here. He's not being as comprehensive as maybe you might like, because there are a number of events in the Gospel of John which are left out at this point. And let me explain why that, what, what is happening here. Luke is trying to focus on certain portions of Jesus' life and ministry for his purposes as a gospel writer, one of the synoptics. Uh, he tells us that Jesus' fame or news of him went throughout all the surrounding region. And it almost sounds like, how can that be? Because he's been baptized and he's had a private encounter with Satan in the wilderness. What is there to be famous for? Are you with me? You know, the, the, this wasn't publicly observed, this temptation and all that. Luke jumps over some events that were newsworthy. There were some movements back and forth that the Lord did. Uh, Jesus had been in Capernaum before. That's up in Galilee, north of Jerusalem, by the Sea of Galilee. Jesus called several disciples from there, Nathaniel, for example, in Cana of Galilee. In that very city, he turned water into wine. He went down to Jerusalem then. This is before 414, kind of between 13 and 14. He went down to Jerusalem, and what did he do down there? He cleaned out the temple. Do you think news of that would have spread? Probably. He taught Nicodemus, John chapter 3, ministered in Judea, ministered with John the Baptist around the Jordan. It says that he and his disciples did some baptisms. And then it says in John chapter 4 that he had to go through Samaria to get back to Galilee. So he ministered at Jacob's well to the woman at the well and to her countrymen. And then he came back to Galilee. And so that all is kind of compressed out of Luke's narrative for the present. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. News of him went throughout all the surrounding regions. There's, there were a number of miracles there and all of that. People began to hear about this Jesus from Nazareth. In verse 15, it tells us, and it says, and he taught in their synagogues. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Where the people were gathered, he ministered by teaching. His MO was to teach. He was filling the gap left by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the priests, the Levites. The nation for a long time had been without king and without a teaching priest. Second Chronicles 15, I think it is, verse 3, somewhere in there says that. And he was filling in the gap. He taught, I think, with, in terms of content, like John the Baptist. What did John the Baptist teach? Remember? Repent. Fruit worthy of repentance. He gave specific examples. Remember, we looked at that. If you're a soldier, do this. If you're a tax collector, do that. You know, uh, that sort of thing. Moral, practical teaching. And then he preached for the kingdom 
of heaven is at hand. So that was the basis for why he was saying, look, you need to repent and you need to have a life that shows true repentance because the kingdom of heaven is on the way. And so John taught that, and Jesus did as well, according to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, uh, taught the same thing. So that was the basics of what he was teaching. Now, we're going to find out more here in chapter 4 of Luke. Initially, the Bible says he was honored by the people. Notice the end of verse 15. He was glorified by all. What he said was true and very fitting to the Hebrew Bible. You remember uh, reports from the other Gospels. This man teaches like one with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees teach. You know, what are they doing? They're basically, you know, quoting so-and-so and so-and-so from their historical teachings. And here comes Jesus, very, very different than what they were accustomed to. And so they were amazed initially and perhaps initially thinking, boy, who is this guy? You know, kind of raised up right out of Nazareth like a prophet of old. But when he brought new material and taught them the very deep truth that they needed, as time progressed, they began to balk at what he said. Jesus was something of an itinerant or circuit preacher. His home base was Capernaum. If you look in John, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, it's John, John chapter 2, verse number 12, the scripture says, and after this he went down to Capernaum. This is after the Cana wedding incident. He went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. I'm just thinking now, very interesting. It doesn't mention his dad, does it? He's probably gone by then. Jesus being 30 years old or so. And it seems that he moves to Capernaum, takes his mother with him, brothers and disciples. But they did not stay there many days. And then it talks about him going down to Jerusalem and and cleanse out the temple. So it says he came to Nazareth in verse 16, where he had grown up. This is... Uh, well, I should say it this way. The second time that he went there is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 13. At the end of the chapter, it says, he came to his own country and taught in their synagogue. And they ask, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where did, these, where did this man get all these things? And I'm hearing in there, a a note of envy or a note of disdain. This guy is a nobody. Where did he get all of this? Verse 57, so they were offended at him. They weren't saying this like, wow, look at this. Look at what come out of Nazareth. You know, wonderful. God has raised up a prophet for us. No, they were offended. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Sad testimony of his own hometown. That was the second time he was there, at least in an order of events that I understand. But the first time earlier here in his public ministry, he comes 
and this first time didn't turn out any better. So we'll talk about first his ministry at the synagogue in Nazareth, and then we'll talk about his rejection there in accordance with the order of the text. Verse number 16, we've started already. He is brought up there, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So there's a lot there. Uh, He may have been working through the week, but on the Sabbath, he was in the synagogue. Now, he had been in that Sabbath for many years as a young man. And these few hours that he had with the crowd there were a very important time of weekly ministry with people gathered from their labors out in the field and out in their homes. And he was given the scroll of Isaiah to read, and he opened it up to the place where we know as Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and he read that. Let me just give you a a funny little illustration. I grew up at a church in Chelsea and um, about 2005 or maybe very early 2006, just before I began my ministry here, they had an, an, an empty uh, pulpit one Sunday at the beginning of the year, and they somehow got a hold of me and asked if I would provide pulpit supply. And I said, sure, I'll do that. And so I went there, and they were, um, it was wintertime in January, I think it was, and they were having trouble with their furnace and uh, going down in the basement and looking at that, and I, I didn't know anything about their setup or anything. I'm just kind of looking on and seeing what they're doing, this big, huge furnace, and um, they're kind of fiddling around with that. And then I, you know, they didn't, apparently they didn't understand that I was there to be the substitute preacher. So I suggested to some of the guys, well, why don't we go up to the pastor's office and have some prayer before the service? And I remember the one guy was like, now, why are you doing this? <laughs> I grew up in the church, you know, and so it's just some kid, you know. Well, now he thinks he's going to take charge of this place or something. <laughs> and so we had prayer, and, and uh, the service went off okay, and I preached, and uh, that was an interesting experience. But um, I think I had a little more honor there than, I, than Jesus had in his home synagogue in Nazareth. But um, what happened, the, the, the text here doesn't tell us the order of service of the synagogue, And let me just emphasize, that's not an important point of this passage, okay? I'm going to say a little bit about it, but I don't want to make too big of a deal about it because it's not really significant. What's significant is he he got the scriptures, he read them, and he, he preached or taught, and then the response that followed. That's what's emphasized. But just maybe a little bit of color to the story, how did this happen? I mean, I didn't just walk into the church there in Chelsea and say, you know, uh, a random guy off the street, hey, I'll preach today for you. No, I was invited to come and do that by some of the leadership where the other left hand of the leadership didn't know what the right hand, that's how that worked out, how they, why some didn't know that I was, why I was there. But um, he comes in, we don't know of any invitation. Um, perhaps it was like a synagogue service in modern times where, I don't have the whole order of service listed out here, but you read a portion of the law the Torah, and it was interpreted into the language of the people. So it's read in the Hebrew text, obviously, maybe not obvious to you, but they would have to explain it in Aramaic, which is the language that was being used uh, there probably at the time. And so they did that. And after the reading of the Torah, Jesus then stood 
to, indicating, to indicate that, and perhaps this is how it worked, he stood to indicate he would take the reading of the Haftorah, which is the portion of the prophets that was the normal order of the service of the synagogue. Now, to me, I mean, as somebody, that wouldn't happen this way here generally, although we just had an interesting example of somebody coming up to the pulpit who wasn't in the program. But, you know, normally somebody wouldn't stand up in the service and say, hey, brother, I'll take your spot and preach. Like, mm, maybe not so comfortable with that, uh, you know. Um, but that's how it was. A visiting rabbi would be, uh, you know, honored or welcomed to participate somehow in the service. Now, I have had that happen before. Brother Dwayne can tell you all about it. Remember, brother? A couple of services that I went to that he invited me to, but and then somebody, he or somebody else said, hey, my pastor is here. And then all of a sudden, the next thing I know, I'm being invited up to the platform to say something or have a prayer or give some comments. And I was like, well, I was just, you know, Dwayne said, I was just here for the funeral. I, mean, <laughs> I didn't have to say anything. Um, so Jesus stood to indicate he was going to read there and lead maybe that next portion of the service. And I'm not so sure that he just, you know, was given the, the scroll of Isaiah and, you know, rolled it randomly to a point and just looked at it and started reading. It may be that that portion that was read was the one assigned for that day. Are you with me? It's not like you just go and you just read some randomized portion of, of Scripture. It may be, well, that Isaiah 61 was the portion that was already scheduled for that day or and the uh, surrounding portions. And I was just uh, alerted to this, very fascinating, in Isaiah 58, just a couple of chapters before. In Isaiah 58, verse number 6, listen to this as we prepare to read what the Lord read himself out of Isaiah 61. Is this not the fast that I have chosen, says the Lord, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. And so the Lord then read Isaiah 61, 1 and part of 2. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Stop reading. Why he stopped, it's often been pointed out, because what he read was fulfilled in their hearing. What was not read was not yet fulfilled and wouldn't be yet for some time because it says, in the day of vengeance of our God. That's yet future. That wasn't fulfilled at that particular time. So, he opened the book, he found the place where it was written, and then he read, and I'll read it again this time from Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to do what? To preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, I'm just going to tell you, I did not look at the textual variance in the, in the Hebrew and the Masoretic text and the uh, Septuagint, all of that sort of stuff. I didn't, okay? The text is so close that it's really not relevant. We understand what is being read here. 
And uh, the point I want to focus on is the content of this and then the following verses down through verse number 30. By the way, this is why we read Scripture in our services. Not only because of 1 Timothy 14, which said, or 1 Timothy 4.13, which says that we are to give attention to the public reading of Scripture. I take that as a command for the church. Uh, after all, in the first centuries of the church, people didn't have Bibles at home. You couldn't tell people in the church service, hey, people, listen, read your Bible every day this week. Now, I can tell you that because you all have Bibles, and we should read it since we have access to it. But they didn't, so they had to have it. They had to hear it to, be, to, to read it out loud in the church service. But also because of this example in the synagogue and the Lord himself uh, giving the word and then teaching about that word, evidently. The Lord had a purpose in reading that short section that he did. The moments after his reading, l- listen to this. The moments after his reading were pregnant. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant, the servant, and sat down. And all the eyes who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Can you imagine that? Now, when he read it, I suspect that he read it in a way that they knew he meant it. He didn't just read it, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, you know. The Spirit of God was upon him. God sent me to proclaim liberty, and so on and so forth. They knew something was odd, something was different about this reading of the Scripture. Expectation was high as they looked at him. Something was different now. Jesus was older. He had been preaching. He had been doing miracles. They heard the fame of him going around. And now he had stood to read in honor of the word. And he sat down to teach, which was the customary posture for teaching. He then shocked them all by saying in verse 21, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Boy, knocked him over with a feather. Luke doesn't record all of what Jesus said, but it appears that he said much more than just that because it says in verse 22, So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. So there was more than just the reading of a verse and a half and the phrase, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I take it that he preached on that passage of Scripture and explained what it meant. He did what he always did. It says in the introductory verse, remember, it said he went in the surrounding region and taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And then he came to the synagogue of Nazareth as his custom was. He was there to preach the word of the living God. And, of course, in a very special way, in fact, in his reading and in his statement, nobody else can make a a sermon like that. That's the one time that that sermon could be preached like that in all of world history. So he was preaching. What was he doing? He was preaching good news, the gospel to the poor, healing the brokenhearted, proclaiming liberty, restoring sight to the blind, proclaiming the coming kingdom. Perhaps he explained each one of those points, something like this. First of all, the Spirit of God is upon me. 
The Bible tells us that the Lord did return to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, remember? And before that, when he traveled into the wilderness, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, the other gospel writer, Matthew, writes it basically says he was just driven into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. It was like the next level of awakening to his mission to God and what he had to do. And, and the Spirit of God was guiding him in that way. He was filled with the Spirit of the living God. He was self-aware that the Spirit of God was filling him or influencing him. It just occurs to me now to ask this question. You know the Bible says that Christians can be filled with the Spirit, right? You with me? Do you... Are you self-conscious, not like self-conscious that you're wearing mismatching socks, are are you self-conscious, are you consciously aware about yourself whether you are filled with God's Spirit or not? Or do you only take it on the word of the Bible and the word the pastor says, well, Christians are supposed to be filled with the Spirit. I don't feel it very much, or I don't know what that is, but... Okay, I'll take him at his word. That's good. You take God at his word. But I think you can be somewhat aware increasingly as you mature in the faith that you are being filled by God's spirit, influenced by his spirit. Now, I'm not saying that you, you know, make a declaration and by so, so saying that you, you're now filled with the spirit. You're looking at yourself in, re, in comparison to the text of Scripture, the evidences of life, the evidences of Christian maturity, and you're saying, boy, the Spirit of God sure has worked on me since I was, whenever, back then, when I was a real wretch. I'm changed. I'm thinking in a more mature way. I'm thinking in a more pure way. I'm making choices that are much better. I, my, my passions are under control. That would not have happened without the work of the Spirit of God. So you can be self-aware that that is happening in your life. And I'm encouraging you to pursue in that direction. Okay, Again, it's not the self-awareness or the mystical feeling of it that is it, or that's, you know, you're supposed to, you know, chase after that until you get some, some mystical feeling. I'm not saying that. You need to look at your life objectively and say, is my life like what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. I'm not drunk with wine. I'm being filled with the Spirit consistently. I'm walking in wisdom. I'm walking in the light. I'm living in right relationship with my spouse, my children, my employer, my church. I'm putting on the whole armor of God. Those sorts of things, okay? Anyway, Jesus knew that better than any of us would of ourselves. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Secondly, It says in verse 18, because he has anointed me to do these things. Anointed meaning he's he's put his spirit upon me, he's set me, he's marked me out uh, for that. This is interesting because it's from the verb kryo in Greek, which is in turn a verbal cognate of the word Christos, which is the word Christ. He has anointed me. He has basically made me the Christ. 
The Hebrew text has the verb form for this, mashak. What does that remind you of? Mashiach. Yeshua, HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. It's the word from which we get Messiah. So Christ, anointed one, Messiah. Jesus is basically saying to this crowd, I am the anointed one. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. So he could say later on when they say, who are you? Tell us. He could say, I've been telling you from the beginning. I'm reading Isaiah 61 and telling it in public in the synagogue in Nazareth where I began that I am the Christ, the anointed one. Then he's anointed to do what functions? Well, first of all, to preach the gospel to the poor. Now, the word poor, please, don't read it in terms of economics. It does not refer to someone who's monetarily impoverished. Although we can admit, I think, that those type of people are often statistically more willing to receive the message of the gospel. Not so many mighty and noble and rich and powerful are concerned about the gospel. They don't need God, after all. They've got everything else that they need, they think. They do need God, but they don't realize it. But beside the point, it, this poor refers to someone who's poor in spirit, someone who's meek, humble, one who recognizes they are impoverished spiritually before God. They are the, the lowly ones before God. The Lord directed his speaking to such people. Who will listen? Who will listen to the Lord Jesus except the lowly? Will the high and mighty listen to him? No, maybe the high and mighty person who's actually humble of heart, okay, we can admit that, but the person who's lowly, who recognizes his need, whom God is drawing to salvation. Remember Matthew chapter 5, verse number 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The whole beatitude section there has similar thoughts in it that some of the phrases that we see here. Uh, fourthly, Jesus says, not only am I to function by preaching the gospel to the poor, and I haven't even mentioned what the gospel is, the good news of salvation in him, but also to sent, he sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Now, this is spiritual brokenheartedness, okay? You notice my little frowny face there in the notes? Okay, this is not that your boyfriend just left you and you're brokenhearted, okay? Something like that. It's not that kind of brokenheartedness. Let's go back to Psalm 34. Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Okay, the parallelism in Hebrew poetry informs us that the brokenhearted are the same as those who have a contrite spirit. Okay? You're broken over your sin. Have you had that experience in your life? Brokenness over sin. I read years and years ago a book called... Uh, oh, what was it now? The Calvary Road, I think, by Roy Hessian. 
H-E-S-S-I-O-N, I think the last name was, really talked about this. These, these guys like these Puritan writers of years ago, they knew how to get to the brass tacks of your sin in your heart. And if you haven't come to a place where you have broken, a broken spirit, a broken heart over your sin, you've got to get there, my friend. You've got to recognize, man, I am evil before God. Uh, Psalm 51, verse 17, the other verse says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Very opposite of an arrogant heart. That's what the Lord is doing. He's come to heal the brokenhearted. That is, if you're broken over your sin, the answer to that brokenness is Christ. You come to him and you believe in him. You take him. He will wash you clean and he will take that brokenness and mend it together. Isn't that something? Isn't that something that he promises to do that? He was sent to do that. Fifth, he was sent to proclaim liberty to the captives. This is not the liberation gospel. Once again, I hope you see the common theme here. We're not talking about what people do. Oh, poor, that means economic poor. No, that's totally misreading the scriptures. Brokenhearted, oh, that means you're sad. You have emotional problems. No, it doesn't mean that. Liberty to the captives. No, it doesn't mean people who are in the jail or people who are oppressed by man. But it means liberty from enslavement to sin. Jesus proclaimed to the religious leaders of the day, if you commit sin, you are a slave of sin. Now, you might be thinking, now that, that's just a plain old fact, okay? Everybody who's not in Christ is enslaved to sin. But you might be thinking, listen, I'm not that bad. I'm not bad at all, in fact. I'm a good person. I don't see how you can say that I'm enslaved to sin. But let me just challenge you. God's view is much different than yours, if that's your view. God's view is all-encompassing, it's all-wise, it's holy, it's different. He says that all are sinners. Listen, you have not loved God with all of your heart. You've not loved your neighbor as yourself. You have loved yourself most highly. You have many things of higher priority than God. Your thoughts, perhaps filled with covetousness and lust, which amounts to idolatry. Your thoughts full of rebellion and anger. Anger at people around you. Anger, anger at your work, co-workers, your parents, the people at school. Angry at whatever. Sometimes hatred, which amounts to murder. All people are born this way. The world is filled with people like you. And in fact, if that's all the world had, it wouldn't be a very good world, would it? Now, the, the wicked are estranged from the womb, speaking lies. There's not a just man on the earth who does right and does not sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the world in which we live, not the world that you want to live in, not the world that you think, you know, because you're sort of a good person. You need salvation. Number six, the Lord reads in Isaiah 61, he's come to proclaim liberty. I'm sorry, to, pro to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind. Recovery of sight to the blind. If you, 
do not see your own need, that need which I just spoke about, then you are blind. If only you could see. If only you could see. Like the church at Laodicea, people can be religious or maybe not religious, but at the same time, they're actually poor and blind and naked and wretched. Naked in terms of their spiritual garb before God. They they suppose that they're well covered. You remember the Laodicean church? Because you're lukewarm, you're not you're not useful cold, you're not useful hot, you're just in the middle, just spit you out. You're not walking with Christ at all. Uh, not refreshing, cold, not on fire, hot. But they thought they're well covered. We're we're clothed, we're rich, we're great. But they cannot, in fact, see that. Their clothing is the emperor's new suit, which is nothing. They have no covering before God. What's the covering that God receives? You've clothed me with the robe of righteousness in Christ Jesus. That's the covering that God receives as true covering. That's not an emperor's new suit. That is true covering payment for sin. Now, how can you tell if you're blind? You say, Pastor, how do I know if I'm blind like this? Well, here's the one diagnostic that I could think of. If when you read the Bible and you do not accept what it says, then you're blind. Does that make sense? Because the, blind, the minds of the unbeliever are blinded by the evil one in the reading of Holy Scripture. Remember that, 2 Corinthians 4 4, 2 Corinthians 3, 14. Even in the reading of Scripture, if you're saying, then you are blind because you don't see the obvious, the obvious that you need to see. Number seven, the ministry of Christ is to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Okay, this is like the captives uh, idea. Uh, we're not talking about you know, necessarily societal oppression. There are many, many, many Christians throughout the world who are oppressed right now, and God hasn't released them from that oppression. But He has released them from another kind of oppression. The oppression here are not those that are under the boot of the police, nor under the boot of a police state. Now listen, the oppressors are dead wrong in that case. In such cases, I should say. But the oppression implemented by the devil is far worse. You know what the devil holds over the heads of people? All their lifetimes, people go around subject to the fear of death. Listen to Acts 10.38. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, there's that word anoint again, with the Holy Spirit, there it is again, and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. All who were oppressed by the devil. Finally, Jesus' ministry is to preach the gospel, to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And then finally, verse 19, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And we'll close 
pretty quickly after this. What does it mean to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord? That's kind of an enigmatic statement, isn't it? I thought it was, as I thought about it, as I've read it many times, like, what what exactly is that? Well, let me help you with this. We have a phrase used in official documents in the United States that's like the one that President Biden just signed. Two days ago, he ordered flags to fly at half-staff in honor of the mass shooting victims in Lewiston, Maine. Lewiston, or where I don't know, remember the cities exactly, but... At the end of that proclamation or order, it reads this. In witness whereof, I have hereunto set my hand, that's about the signature, this 26th day of October, in the year of our Lord, 2023. And I've read this many, many times as I've read presidential proclamations, that they set their hand this such and such day of this month in the year of our Lord. And then it gives the year. The year of the Lord is a reference. Now, of course, I understand. They're just doing it because it's tradition, all right? But the year of the Lord, properly understood, is a reference to what some call the Messianic Age, in which I take to refer to his kingdom, which is yet future. He was preaching not only repentance, but also what? He was preaching that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Now is the acceptable time. Now, the acceptable year of the Lord. This is kingdom language. Regal, royal proclamation that he's making. He's he's really doing, he's saying in a way, indirectly, two things. I've come to deal with the sin problem, and I've come to take the kingdom. I'm the anointed one. The one anointed to take the punishment for sins like Isaiah 53 and the one anointed to take the kingdom like in Isaiah chapter 9, the government will be upon my shoulder, he says, and the sins of the people also will be where? On his shoulders. He bore them in his own body on the tree and so comes to pass that which the prophets didn't quite grasp. How could the Messiah, the anointed one, both suffer and be glorified? Well, that's because he came to deal with sin, and the second time he's coming, not going to be dealing with sin. It's going to be judgment. It's going to be the kingdom. And so that's what we say. Uh, While we can say today, even though the kingdom may be not at hand exactly in the same way, the kingdom is coming. And so we best kiss the sun, lest he be angry at you. Remember the Psalm 2 language? Very important for us. So let's pause there with the message. We'll come back to it uh, in Luke 4 the next time we get together, uh, Lord willing. Pray with me, would you? Father in heaven, we pray that you would uh, help us to rejoice in the teaching that the Lord did in the synagogue, perhaps something similar to what we were just able to say in far less eloquent and less, I don't know what the word is, complete words, because he was the perfect preacher. And we're uh, very, very low understudies. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take these words and you would challenge our hearts with them, that you would draw us close to yourself, 
You would not let us be like we will read later these audience members in the synagogue who rose up in hatred and tried to kill Jesus for saying these words. So we commit ourselves to you, each one, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you join uh, Brother Jansen as he comes to lead us in hymn number 46? We're going to recognize his kingship and his worthiness to receive our praise as we sing, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name.